hppodcraft.com. If heaven ever wishes to grant me a boon, it will be a total effacing of the results of a mere chance which fixed my eye on a certain stray piece of shelf paper. third chapter of the call of cthulhu this chapter of course called the madness from the sea we who is we we uh <laughs> that's me chad pfeiffer <laughs> and me andrew lehman and and who are you sir oh and i guess that would be me chris Hackey. well uh, what do you know it's met again <laughs> <laughs> it seems we're all here again guys for the hp lovecraft literary podcast at hppodcraft.com this is of course the third part in our ongoing three-part series on the hp lovecraft story the call of cthulhu we find our protagonist has mostly given up on the Cthulhu cult. He's taken it as far as he can take it. Exactly. He has followed every lead as far as he can yeah. take it. Well, I mean, right. as far as he knows, it's the end of the story. That's it. Until. Until. Until he comes across this shelf paper that he mentioned in that quote there. Basically, he's examining reserved mineral species at a friend's collection or museum. Yeah, a curator of a local museum and a mineralogist of note. Lovecraft had a good friend, James Morton, who was a mineralogist at the uh, Patterson Museum in New Jersey. And supposedly, he is the guy that first turned Lovecraft on to Algernon Blackwood. Oh, really? Yeah, Lovecraft mentioned it in one of his letters that Morton, James Morton, said, hey, I love this guy. You should read him. And so he read him, and obviously he quoted him at the beginning of the story, so he thinks he's uh, pretty cool. So he's helping, um, I mean, what is he doing? He's just wrapping up some things or unwrapping I think he's. Things. I think the idea is that uh, the mineralogist friend has received a shipment of mineral specimens that are all wrapped up in just wadded up old newspaper, which to the people who did the wrapping was just trash, packing material. Right, exactly. And as he's unwrapping these stones, he lays eyes on a piece of newspaper from Australia. And this, this piece of paper is a clipping from the Sydney Bulletin, April 18th, 1925. And he can't help but recognize the photograph of a certain statue. You right. that is shown in the newspaper. It's uh, it's a picture of an idol, very much like the one Inspector Legrasse had brought to that meeting of archaeologists, and right. that and that our narrator has actually seen in person. The headline says, and and I'll read it like it sounds in my head: Mystery derelict found at sea. Vigilance arrives with helpless armed New Zealand yacht in tow. One survivor and dead man found aboard. Tale of desperate battle and death at sea. Rescued seaman refuses particulars of strange experience. Odd idol found in his possession. Inquiry to follow. Which is a very comprehensive headline. Yeah, that's a really great headline. <laughs> but in Lovecraft's defense, back in the 20s, they really wrote much more comprehensive headlines than they write today. That, that practice of headlines and then subheadlines mm-hmm. that sort of give you the gist of the entire story in the headline, that was actually pretty common. Right. Oh, yeah. And this is a, this is a short article. Um, basically, it just says that a freighter called Vigilant arrived in Sydney towing the battled and disabled steam yacht which was called The Alert, and had been recovered on April 12th, having one living and one dead man. The Vigilant had left Valparaiso on March 25th, but was thrown off course by heavy storms and monster waves, which is what brought it across The Alert. Mm -hmm. When they recovered The Alert, the living man aboard was clutching the idol pictured in this article, and he was half delirious. Right. He had a strange story of uh, piracy and slaughter, is what he said, uh, over the newspaper said. And his name was Gustav Johansson, or Norwegian. Yes, he's a Norwegian. He's the second mate of a schooner called Emma. Mm-hmm. Out of New Zealand. And yeah. that had been sailing for Peru with 11 men aboard, and it was also thrown way off course by storms that came across the Alert. Right. The Alert is this ship that was manned by Pacific Islanders, the Kanakas, and they ordered the Emma to turn back. Right. 
from the course that they had been thrown onto. And the captain, Captain Collins of uh, the Emma, refused to do so. And the people on the alert opened fire. Right. Like immediately. They had, for a yacht, it was su- yeah. surprisingly well armed. A, a battery of brass cannons. And they actually, you know, they, because they're the aggressors, they do some pretty serious damage to the Emma and it starts to sink. But uh, the, the men, Captain Collins and his men on board, they jump off. They board the alert. Quite valiantly. Yeah, and, and they fight the men on the alert, and yeah. they kill every single last one yeah. of them. Hand to hand. Yeah. It's a pretty brutal scene, which is yeah. why it's not in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I actually, when I, when, I was, when I was reading this, I thought, wow, you know, if, probably if we'd had a little more budget. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Or, great, or really any. Yeah. <laughs> could have had a great Captain Blood style uh, uh, sea yeah, battle. That there. would have been awesome. And if there had been room in our garage to stage that scene, <laughs> <laughs> we would have done it. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. The captain and the first mate, unfortunately, are killed in this fight. So the remaining eight sailors are now under Johansson, under Johansson. Right. And uh, since their ship is sinking, the Emma, they take over the alert. And they con- they're inquisitive men. They continue in this direction. Even though they were thrown off course, they continue in this direction because they want to know why the folks on the alert had told them to turn back. Yeah, and we're willing to kill them. They find the log of the alert. And their curiosity is piqued by what they find in the log. And mm-hmm. they determine that they're going to go you know, follow it up. Right. They mentioned later in the story that they felt like it was almost a duty for them to kill these men aboard the alert. Because they were so almost not even human. Yeah. Or Johansson is kind of shocked later when they go before a board of inquiry and, and they get yeah. in trouble for killing them all so ruthlessly. And he's almost like, it wasn't ruthless. It was almost merciful. These yeah. people should have died. You would have done the same. Yeah. 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 But you know those bloodthirsty Norwegians. <laughs> <laughs> they love boarding ships and killing folks. Yeah. <laughs> the blood. The next day on the alert... They keep the course and they land on some island, although there isn't supposed to be an island right. out there. Mm-hmm. There's no nothing on the charts. And what we know from the article is that six of the men died there. Johansson won't say much more. He says they all fell into a chasm. Mm. <laughs> That's uh-huh. basically what happened. He and his companion, William Bryden, they got back aboard the alert from this island, but uh, were again beaten about by the storm that took place on April 2nd. And Johansson doesn't remember anything, really, of what happened in that period until they were rescued. He didn't even know, apparently, that his companion had died. Now, this, yeah. the storm in question was on April 2nd, did you say? Yes. And isn't that date significant somehow? That is uh, the dream, the, or the, the earthquake, actually. So that's the same date as the earthquake and Wilcox's dreams and yes. so many other things that our narrator, Thurston, has uh, identified in the newspapers. Right. Now, all the article mentions about the alert and that group of men who were all killed aboard it is that they had a bad reputation in their port, they were actually known for taking trips in the night into the woods. This crew mm-hmm. uh, never trust anybody who goes into the woods at night for no. any any reason. And when there were these initial earthquakes and tremors in, in March first, they said, "Oh, we got to get to sea." And that crew jumped aboard the alert and they took off as soon as the, those earthquakes and tremors happened. So they knew something was going on. And like you say, these dates they all correspond with the stuff from Wilcox when he began dreaming, and then when he had the really terrible psychotic break. Right. This little piece of info that our narrator sees in this paper clipping that he comes across accidentally. It knocks his socks off. It drives him nuts, man. It finally just puts a little pin in all of that right. pieces of information we've gotten over the last two chapters. Because it's the independent corroboration of everything that right. mm-hmm. it's like the world is reaching out to him and saying, look, this is actually happening. Exactly. And he enters on full-on adventure archaeologist yeah, he turns mode. into... Cthulhu investigator. Yeah, he does. Uh-huh. He starts globetrotting, in fact, to get more information. He takes a train. train to San Francisco, and then he and then he takes a boat to New Zealand. Right. <laughs> and he wants to learn more about the uh, the waterfront scum who, who ran the alert from the people there. And that's where he finds out, you know, more that the people 
All they really say about this crew is that they made those trips to the woods and that they sometimes saw red glare out there and heard some faint drumming when mm-hmm. they went into the woods. So it seems as if the crew of this ship is just like those other cults right. in New Orleans and the Eskimo. And then he wants to you know, talk to uh, Johansson, but Johansson, yeah. uh, he finds out, went back to Norway with his yellow hair turned white. Yeah, he went, he yeah. went, the fear was too much and it turned his hair white. I love that. Yeah. See, the story has everything. Yep. <laughs> That's great. He sold his cottage there in New Zealand and he split for Oslo with his wife. And he manages to get the address while he's there. Then he goes to Sydney, right, to see the alert. There's nothing really, yeah, that's too it's, particular about that. It's part. all it's been cleaned up. There's nothing. There's no real evidence left in yeah. the alert. But he sees what there is to see. Yeah. But then he wants to go. He wants to see the statue. Right. So he goes to the museum in Hyde Park, mm-hmm. where he gets a chance to see the second of the Cthulhu idols. And it's that same crazy material. And he thinks of Castro saying that they came from the stars and had right. brought their images with them when he's looking at it. So things are starting to add up. So, man, this guy, what's he, what's he hoping to find out? You know, like, this would have me pretty scared. I don't know if I would have even uh, ventured out of the country to, to go check this stuff out. You know? <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. What, yeah are you well, crazy? This is, this is horrific, man. He's in so deep, though, he's got to get to the bottom of the mystery. Well, but also, I mean, Thurston has seen a lot of, I mean, really? Thurston's seen a lot of scary newspaper clippings mm-hmm. and heard some scary stories and interviewed some creepy guys. But Thurston has not himself seen the body strung up in the swamp. Right. He has not himself, you know, encountered directly face to face any of these horrible things. So to him it's still a fascinating puzzle and because it seems to have engulfed his uncle and and that kind of stuff, I mean, right. I think that's why he can't yeah, let he, it go. He yeah. he wants it's to the un- he wants to follow it through. Yeah, it's the unanswered questions about his uncle, I guess that really is driving him and maybe yeah. he's hoping to find out who maybe actually killed him. He goes to Oslo after that via London, and he goes to see Johansson, but the guy's dead. Yeah. And, and, how, did, and how did Johansson die? Right. His wife tells him that he's dead and that he'd been out on a walk through the docks, and a bunch of papers fell out right. of a window and knocked him down. Two East Indian sailors help him up, but by the time an ambulance right. comes, he's dead. Right. Whoa. So he, Johansson dies in a manner that's eerily similar to the way mm-hmm. Professor Angel himself died. Exactly. exactly. Strange nautical looking guys bump into you, yeah. and that's curtains. Yeah. <laughs> now, Johansson's wife actually doesn't know too much about what happened out on that island. He didn't reveal too much to her, but he did keep a journal for technical matters. Mm-hmm. It's right. written in English. Which she doesn't speak. She doesn't speak English, so luckily she's she like wasn't. the only person in Norway who doesn't. Speak <laughs> <laughs> right. We love, by the way, can I just say we love our Norwegian friends? We do. Absolutely. We, can I say we love My good our friend Jason Norway. Woodburn lives in Norway, and Jason Woodburn is the guy that turned yeah. me on to H.P. Lovecraft. So uh, there you go. Let's say yeah. thank you to Norway. Thank you, Norway. Thank you, Norway. You went out there to visit him, didn't you? I did. I've been in Norway. Yeah, I went up to Lillehammer to go visit him, and uh, and it's well. I was in Oslo for a bit too, but uh, yeah, it's a great country. It's beautiful. Everybody should go. Except don't walk by, down by the docks if yeah. you read this story. Yeah, and if you do, keep your eyes open. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you could be in trouble real quick. Well, our narrator manages on his visit to Oslo to persuade this wife to give him the technical matters journal. I don't know what kind of spiel he gives her that has her handing this over but she does it and he starts to go through it and uh it's poorly written account of what actually really happened Happened. so now we're really getting into the meat of the story Mm -hmm. uh it tells of the earthquake and storms that threw the emma off course and it tells about the way that they felt they needed to exterminate the men aboard the alert and it tells about how the city rose from the murk when they continued sailing aboard the alert 
I suppose that only a single mountaintop, the hideous monolith-crowned citadel whereon great Cthulhu was buried, actually emerged from the waters. When I think of the extent of all that may be brooding down there, I almost wish to kill myself forthwith. Johansson and his men were awed by the cosmic majesty of this dripping Babylon of elder demons, and must have guessed without guidance that it was nothing of this or of any sane planet. Awe at the unbelievable size of the greenish stone blocks, at the dizzying height of the great carven monolith, and at the stupefying identity of the colossal statues and bas-reliefs with the queer image found in the shrine on the alert, is poignantly visible in every line of the mate's frightened description. Wow. He goes on to say that uh, Johansson kind of just describes the angles of the place, and he talks a bit about futurism. Oh, yeah. Basically, it's it tries to show the dynamism of things. Yeah, it's super angular and super abstract, and it, it is an attempt to sort of capture the feel of, of motion and chaos and sort of overlapping planes of color and right. it was really cool. What was it? Part of the whole, po- is it post-impressionism? It comes out of World War One, I, I think, mostly. And, right. You know, sort of the shakeup of the whole worldview that, that World War One precipitated. Yeah, and it, and it even, um, you know, it sort of deals with, I, I think the reason it's called futurism is it deals with a lot of modern technological things. A lot of futuristic paintings will be of trains or, yeah. the, you know, fast-moving machinery, machinery and industrial yeah. images. Right. And, Back about the, the city this, the, that they found, mm-hmm. uh, he talks about how uh, strange angles that Wilcox was talking about in his dreams sort of places right. this stuff together. And he, and he says uh, what he saw was abnormal non-Euclidean, which is, the, I think, the first time that Lovecraft yeah. uses non-Euclidean. So these, geometrically, these, and the reason that he references futurism is because when Johansson is looking at this place, it just doesn't make any sense. Right. The geometry of it, the shapes, the way they fit together, the way that the depth of things seems to work. It's just not right. Yeah. You don't know whether you're yeah. up or down. Up you or can't down. tell which direction is which. You mm-hmm. can't tell whether you're standing sideways or vertical. Or yeah, It's crazy. It, it messes with your head and your perception, and you don't you can't comprehend what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. That is terrifying. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> so they, they park the boat, you know, they pull up, uh, <laughs> they climb up over these slippery blocks that are jutting out of the, the water. And they're all gripped by fear instinctively, just sort of like I was when we were discussing the, the geography of this place. Uh, and they're, I, I think they're just looking around for some kind of souvenir to take. Right. And, and just to get away. And it's Rodriguez, the Portuguese, right, who, uh, who finds the immense carven door that has these squid-like bas-relief sculptures around it that are very similar to what we've seen Mm elsewhere in the story. I mean, they think it's a door. Yeah. It's all crazily arranged. Yeah, and it's huge. I mean, if it's a door, it's really, really big. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's just sort of this gargantuan, they call it the Great Acre Panel. So really, it's like this gigantic football field panel. And naturally, they start goofing with it, which they probably shouldn't have done. (laughs) They, They press over on all sorts of places. Well, like, it's also surprisingly easy to open, as it turns out, yeah. for yeah. something that's that big. It's, Bri- it's Bryden. <laughs> a sailor. Bryden just kind of comes up and pushes on a stone, right? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, or there's Donovan and Bryden are just both pushing around and goofing on it. And um, Next thing you know. They find some kind of balanced switch. Yeah, he, he he implies that the whole thing is balanced on some sort of pivot point, and all, all they have to do is really apply just a little bit of force to one end, and suddenly right. the whole thing starts wheeling into motion it's kind of like the secret panel in the church or it's the sort of thing we you know something one-eyed willie built exactly (laughs) (laughs) or you know the ancient aztecs or something how did they get all those fancy pneumatic uh things to fire those arrows (laughs) yeah you know and the gears and everything that was pretty elaborate 
stuff. You know, somehow or another, they engineered this thing. Yeah. One-eyed Willie. <laughs> so the panel slides away diagonally, or somehow it makes no yeah. sense, and it and it reveals this aperture. The aperture was black with a darkness almost material. That tenebrousness was indeed a positive quality, for it obscured such parts of the inner walls as ought to have been revealed, and actually burst forth like smoke from its eon-long imprisonment, visibly darkening the sun as it slunk away into the shrunken and gibbous sky on flapping membranous wings. The odor arising from the newly opened depths was intolerable, and at length the quick-eared Hawkins thought he heard a nasty, slopping sound down there. Everyone listened, and everyone was listening still when it lumbered slobberingly into sight and gropingly squeezed its gelatinous green immensity through the black doorway into the tainted outside air of that poisoned city of madness. Yeah. There it is. That's that's wow. an entrance. <laughs> that is an entrance. <laughs> they really screwed up. <laughs> These guys have it coming. If I, if you see a, you're on a boat, you come across a, a city with non-Euclidean geometry, you don't go anywhere near it. You I just know. Get, get back on the boat and go. Well, you know, they, these are seafaring men by their nature. They're explorers. And they they're, you know, stuff. they're crazed with the bloodlust of just having killed every single member of the crew of the alert. <laughs> so they're feeling <laughs> a little, they're feeling invincible right yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, 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 wow. What it says in the story, it says, The stars were right again. And what an age-old cult had failed to do by design, a band of innocent sailors had done by accident. After vigintillions of years, Great Cthulhu was loose again, ravening for delight. I love that passage. Yeah. Vigintillions? Vigintillions. That's, that's amazing. That's a long time. That is a very long time. I, I actually don't know how long that is. It's 1,000 de- decillion, which doesn't... Uh, oh, number of zeros. Here we go. 63. It has 63 zeros. 63 zeros. Wow. That's a lot of zeros, man. Yeah. So, you know... It's been a long time since he's gotten up and he is rav- <laughs> ravening for delights. Yeah. yeah, he's ready to party. And yeah. coffee. Maybe to take a leak. Well, so, so Cthulhu is loose again. Three men were swept up by the flabby claws before anybody turned. God rest them, if there be any rest in the universe. They were Donovan, Guerrera, and Angstrom. Parker slipped as the other three were plunging frenziedly over endless vistas of green-crusted rock to the boat and Johansson swears he was swallowed up by an angle of masonry which shouldn't have been there. An angle which was acute, but behaved as if it were obtuse. So only Bryden and Johansson reached the boat and pulled desperately for the alert as the mountainous monstrosity flopped down the slimy stones and hesitated floundering at the edge of the water. So yeah, Chris, that was you. Parker. Yeah, I was I was Parker. I, I fell into that angle, and let me tell you, it was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if we've ever actually made mention of that on the podcast before, but if you see if you see the film, The Call of Cthulhu, the fella falling into the pit, the angled pit, that is Chris Lackey. The, uh, the yeah. pit that should have been obtuse, but behaved, uh, should have been acute, but behaved as if it were obtuse. Just like Chris himself. <laughs> uh, man. It's pretty fun. Somebody on the forums, I don't remember who, uh, mentioned something about ravenous cougars. And uh, I yeah. knew that they had um, seen the extras footage on the That's DVD right. because um, did I, I made some reference to there being uh, cougars like a, hidden a under cougar the sand. Down. Oh, right. Yeah. Because yeah. Robertson was giving me a hard time because right. I wouldn't fall 
I was really nervous about falling backwards into the into this right. thing. And <laughs> yeah. he just was calling me a big wimp because he's like, you know, there's a foot of padding down there. But there was also, you know, yeah. nails and just hard wood and all types yeah. of different things. And I'm going to defend myself right now. And then I also said that there was there was a hungry cougar that was tied up at the bottom. And that's my claim to fame. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that is absolutely it. <laughs> <laughs> But this is a monster chase. I mean, there's a giant monster chase. There is a very guys. large monster chase. That's amazing. Him. And killing. Yeah, and he's yeah. He, he's gobbling him up. And he is he has apart. quite a reach as well. Yeah, yeah he's a big fella. Wow. Uh, uh, it's amazing that he just woke up after Vigintillion years and just started beating ass right away. I mean, he just started <laughs> destroying guys. So the yep. two sailors, they managed to escape and get to the boat, get the steam engine going again, and they just they haul out of there as mm-hmm. quickly as they can. And Lovecraft describes Cthulhu as being like Polypheme cursing the fleeing ship of Odysseus. He used that description in Dagon as well, uh, the Polyphemus kind of connection to, to the Odyssey. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. So that's which clearly another one of those influences. Yeah, which is the Cyclops. Yeah, that's the name that, of the Cyclops. That Odysseus tricks. That Odysseus a, tricks and yeah, blinds. Yeah. So, of course, Cthulhu comes after them. Going away on a ship isn't going to keep this. Hello, he can after. swim. Exactly. <laughs> it says he slid greasily into the water. Yeah. Ugh. <sighs> That's so terrible. Bryden looks back as he slides greasily into the water. And that's it. Pursuing them. That's, that's a mistake for, for Bryden. Yeah, He's big done. Mistake. He, he starts, he goes mad and he yeah. starts laughing. He laughs to death. Yeah. He continues laughing until he dies. It's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, what is it that's making him laugh so hard when he goes mad? The, Just, the joke of existence. The, yeah. The yeah. perception of how we all are. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, no, I think he just got the the ultimate joke. You know, he's like, oh, wait a minute. All those things I thought were so important and that meant things mean nothing. Hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) But Johansson hadn't given out yet. Knowing that the thing could surely overtake the alert until steam was fully up, he resolved on a desperate chance. And setting the engine for full speed, ran lightning-like on deck and reversed the wheel. There was a mighty eddying and foaming in the noisome vine, and as the steam mounted higher and higher, the brave Norwegian drove his vessel head-on against the pursuing jelly, which rose above the unclean froth like the stern of a demon galleon. The awful squid head with writhing feelers came nearly up to the bowsprit of the sturdy yacht, but Johansson drove on relentlessly. There was a bursting as of an exploding bladder, a slushy nastiness as of a cloven sunfish, a stench as of a thousand opened graves and a sound that the chronicler would not put on paper. For an instant, the ship was befouled by an acrid and blinding green cloud, and then there was only a venomous seething astern, where, God in heaven, the scattered plasticity of that nameless sky spawn was nebulously recombining in its hateful original form, whilst its distance widened every second as the alert gained impetus from its mounting steam. So he rams him. Yeah, he he rammed Cthulhu. Johansson rams him with the boat, and then he kind of pops like a balloon almost. That's crazy. crazy. That is crazy. I mean, they they do foreshadow it a little bit earlier when Castro says these things have no real physical form and can can take many shapes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they have shapes, but they're not flesh and blood as as you or I know it. Right. That's a pretty brave thing he did there, though. Well, that's well. I mean, what, how many options did he really have? Yeah, I guess you're right. Well, I mean, just keep steaming away and close your eyes and cry. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you know, you're right. You're right. He pulled it together and was like, you know what? I'm going to be proactive about this and uh, yeah. try and ram this monster. Maybe it'll do something. And it did. Wow. No, not to not to be a downer at all. But this this passage does contain the one bit of description that has always struck me as a little goofy, and okay. that is uh, a cloven sunfish. 
<laughs> um, that is a little as of a cloven sunfish. I, I, that that's a metaphor that has always sort of escaped me. I I guess I don't know that much about sunfish or cleaving yeah. them, but a slushy nastiness as of a cloven sunfish. I don't know what it is about sunfish that's particularly nasty. Yeah, or yeah, why why, I mean, why is a sunfish more nasty than any other than uh, a, fish you know, a catfish or a, right. any other kind of fish? And and sunfish, it sounds so pleasant. I mean, sunfish are big. That's that's the only thing I can think of. Is that sunfish are bigger than your average fish? But we should put a picture up of a of a, of a sunfish on on uh, for the show notes. Give a link to yeah. it, and people could. Yeah, let's have it's actually pretty on. creepy looking. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Johansson he had quite an experience, so maybe some odd images are popping into his head. You know, Perhaps, in, no uh, doubt. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, not sitting in judgment over and, Johansson's. Uh, he's, he's sort of insensible after that conflict, and then we know what happens to him from our newspaper clipping. Right. Right. He gets picked up, and he eventually, you know, his hair goes white, and he, he dies. Under suspicious circumstances on the docks of yeah. Moscow. Uh-huh. So, having discovered all of these things that have happened, and having discovered that all of his uncle's researches point to this real incident, our narrator concludes the entire tale with this. That was the document I read. And now I have placed it in the tin box beside the bas-relief and the papers of Professor Angel. With it shall go this record of mine, this test of my own sanity, wherein is pieced together that which I hope may never be pieced together again. I have looked upon all that the universe has to hold of horror, and even the skies of spring and the flowers of summer must ever afterward be poison to me. (laughs) But I do not think my life will be long. As my uncle went, as poor Johansson went, so I shall go. I know too much, and the cult still lives. Cthulhu still lives too, I suppose. Again in that chasm of stone which has shielded him since the sun was young. His accursed city is sunken once more, for the vigilant sailed over the spot after the April storm. But his ministers on earth still bellow and prance and slay around idle-capped monoliths in lonely places. He must have been trapped by the sinking whilst within his black abyss, or else the world would by now be screaming with fright and frenzy. Who knows the end? What has risen may sink, and what has sunk may rise. Loathsomeness waits and dreams in the deep, and decay spreads over the tottering cities of men. A time will come, but I must not and cannot think. Let me pray that if I do not survive this manuscript, my executors may put caution before audacity and see that it meets no other eye. Which, of course, they don't do because we're reading it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, no. Now, now we're going to get it. Exactly. Oh, man. And, and, uh, and that is the end of the story. That is the end of the story. Man, I, I can't express enough how much I, I love the story. It's just, it, it's all magic. I love it. Even the sunfish. <laughs> <laughs> I do find it odd that, that he wouldn't just burn all of this stuff himself or get rid of it or destroy it himself. Why does he have to rely on the executors of, of his items or his objects to take care of? Well, maybe uh, they... Um, why would he want to pass on this? I don't know. Maybe he knowledge? hopes that they'll have the resources to somehow c- combat this cult. You know, that maybe maybe there's, you know, somebody will find it that will be in a position of power that they can do something about it. Yeah. 
do we we don't really i mean we know that thurston is predicting his own imminent demise because he knows too much but we don't actually know what happens to thurston true no. and maybe we're, he's just hanging on to it because he wants it but right. in the event that he does die he hopes right people will be smart enough to take care of it. he puts his own written down thing in the in the same box with all the other evidence and then locks it away but i think the implication is that that his predictions have come true and that he's dead and the only reason we are now reading this document is because Oh right, dead. of course. Yeah. Yeah. But but uh okay, so he didn't that. because he died under probably mysterious circumstances, yeah. he wasn't able to destroy this himself. Right. And he didn't have a chance to warn anybody, oh, don't right. read what's in the you know, we are in exactly the position he was in at the beginning of the story. Where, <laughs> That's you know, right. Somebody dies under mysterious circumstances and we find the key to the strange box and yeah. oh boy, it starts all over again. Uh this is the best story. It is. It's got the best ideas. It's the the, the most well written. It's it's inspiring. It gives me you know ideas and and thoughts. It really builds this world and takes you into it. And it it feels so so real. And I think that's what Lovecraft was trying to capture with all of his other stories, specifically you know like the the shunned house. You know where he took all these historical events and tried to weave them into this story to make it. And you know he just failed with that, in my opinion. But this he fr- knocks out of the park man it's so good yeah it, it really is it is extremely accessible in a way that most of his other stories aren't I, you know i it's really easy to identify with the narrator's voice with francis whalen thurston right you know you really feel like and especially because the baton is quite literally passed to the reader i mean mm-hmm. you really do feel like you know you yourself could be next it is yeah. that sort of where you know the horrors in the story really do reach out and 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 you do feel like you yourself have gotten yourself in some trouble by having read this story by yeah, the time it's done. So good. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Uh, however, I don't think the editor of Weird Tales loved it at first, did he? No, he didn't. Good old uh Farnsworth Wright. Lovecraft wrote this in the summer of twenty six, but um mm. Farnsworth Wright was, you know, he didn't want anything to do with it. And he hasn't really published anything of Lovecraft since that whole incident with the Love Dead, that whole thing that happened. And then Lovecraft's friend and fellow writer, uh, Donald Wandry, went to Farnsworth. And um, Wandry wrote a book called Lovecraft in Providence. And this, I'll just read this passage for you. I casually worked in a reference to a story, The Call of Cthulhu, that Lovecraft was revising and finishing, and which I thought was a wonderful tale. But I added that for some reason or another, Lovecraft had talked about submitting it to other magazines. I said I just couldn't understand why he was apparently planning to bypass weird tales unless he was seeking to broaden his markets or widen his reading public. None of this was true, but I could see that my fanciful account took effect in the way that Wright began to fidget and show signs of agitation, for he rose and paced around his office. So there you go. Interesting. So, so, so yeah, you go, Donald. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Well Donald. done, sir. Yeah, that's great. So he kind of did a little, uh, you know, almost like a little Tom Sawyer kind of thing on, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. on Farnsworth. And Farnsworth, what other people are interested? In? Maybe, maybe I should uh, publish this, and then he does, and it's great. So that reminds me of, uh, uh, I had a friend who tried to quit a job once, and he just didn't really want to say why he was quitting. So he told them, I got offered another job at a ridiculous salary thinking that he would then get fired. And they said, okay, we'll meet the salary. You know, he just made up this thing that he wound up <laughs> wow. making the ridiculous stuff. It's that, it's that, it's almost like good agenting, you know? Mm. Well, he's got a lot of other offers, so yeah. you've got to act now. Mm. 
So it finally appeared in the February 1928 issue of Weird Tales. It's been great fun discussing this story. And it's the sort of story that we could continue discussing for several more hours. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it would just be fanboy fawning <laughs> at some point. <laughs> That's kind of what it's been so far. So. Not too many pot shots. But you know what? I'm not going to apologize for that. Yeah. That's the reason that, you know, hey, look, we went through a lot of stories to get here. <laughs> really a great really great story and i've had a lot of fun talking about it with you guys i want to thank andrew again for joining us andrew, thank Thanks you so for much letting me. Uh, and, my pleasure entirely and, and of course thank you for your excellent reading um i want to thank reber clark for, for the great music so next week we're we're not just going to do one black bottle we're going to mm. do two black bottles two black bottles that's the next story that's the next story and it's uh he did it with uh wilfred blanche talman and not to be com- with Wilford Brimley. Uh, that should be an interesting, interesting show. Uh, that's all we have for now. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Andrew Lehman. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hbpodcraft.com. And then Chris, you scream. Ah! <laughs> <laughs>